about communion. If you have your Bible, would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11? We're going to read from verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. On the 20th of March, 1531, in the Netherlands, a man by the name of Sike Frierks was beheaded for being baptized as a believer. In the criminal sentence book of the court of Friesland, it states this, Sike Frierks on this 20th of March, 1531, is condemned by the court to be executed with the sword. His body shall be laid on the wheel and his head shall be set upon a stake because he has been rebaptized and perseveres in that baptism. Just 20 years later, between the years of 1555 and 1558, during the reign of Queen Mary, 288 Protestant reformers were burned at the stake, including one archbishop, four bishops, 21 clergymen, 55 women, and four children. And the reason for their death was communion. History books say this of this moment. The doctrine in question was the real presence of the body and the blood of Christ and the consecrated elements of bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. Did they or did they not believe that the body and blood of Christ were really, that is corporally, literally, locally, and materially present under the forms of bread and wine after the words of consecration were pronounced? Did they or did they not believe that the real body of Christ, which was born of the Virgin Mary, was present on the altar so soon as the mystical words had passed the lips of the priest? Did they or did they not? That was the simple question. If they did not believe and admit it, they were burnt. These people were martyred due to their belief in the Lord's Supper. Their belief as to whether it was a symbolic act or a literal event. Now, in response to this quick history lesson, in response to these stories from the 1500s about people being martyred for their belief in baptism and communion, our natural thought process is, well, times have moved on from then. And things like that don't really happen anymore. The truth is, actually, they do in some places around the world. But thank God it's not common practice amongst us. It's not a common occurrence. But here's the point in sharing these stories this morning, and the point is this. At one time, the ordinances of baptism and communion were considered of such incredible importance and as having such spiritual significance that they were considered worth dying for, and equally, I suppose, even worth killing for. To these people and to that generation, their belief in baptism and their belief in the breaking of bread was so sacred and was so important, they were willing to give their lives to hold such a belief and to have such a practice. Thank God that today in our churches, we have complete freedom to practice our beliefs. But let our heart resonate with this. People gave their lives for that which we, as part of our worship, 
can at times do flippantly, routinely, and is just a matter of habit. And as we prepare to build into the practice, or to build the practice of communion back into our practice of community, perhaps we need to pause and adjust our understanding of it, to reform our approach to it, to restore the spiritual significance to what at times we can consider as a formality of practice. Unfortunately, I think that we have put so much focus in calling out communion as a symbolic act that we've actually lost sight of the power and spiritual significance of the act. We've become so focused, particularly in evangelical circles, on demystifying the breaking of bread, on challenging the beliefs of transubstantiation, the belief that the bread and the wine magically turn into the literal body and blood of Jesus. We've become so focused on calling out our difference from our Catholic brothers and sisters that we've actually gone to the opposite extreme and rendered communion as an empty act that is just like Christian pageantry, packed full of symbolism but devoid of the spiritual. And let's be clear. We don't believe that the bread and wine turn into the body and blood of Jesus. But we do have to recognize that when we understand communion properly and scripturally and begin to approach its practice with the right heart and the right mind, there is so much spiritually that takes place in that moment. Communion is not an empty symbol. It's a spiritual experience. And before I get stoned for heresy and you call for my P45, let's unpack that thought together. Paul opens the whole passage with the statement, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The phrase passed on was a technical term used amongst the rabbis in the time of New Testament to describe the official sacred transmission of religious traditions. The idea was that rabbis received and passed on the teaching of their masters. So Paul uses the phrase, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, and he does that to position his teaching as official and authentic. In essence, what he's saying here is, what I'm about to share with you, it's not my teaching. It's not my thoughts and opinions on this matter. What I'm sharing with you has its origins in Jesus. It's not my instructions. It's his. And by opening up the whole teaching and the whole instruction on communion with the phrase, what I received from the Lord is what I passed on to you, he is telling his readers, what I'm about to say to you, what you're about to read has to be taken seriously. This has to be received as received from the Lord. This is his instruction. This needs to be heeded. And here are the instructions. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Those couple of verses are the couple of verses that we're going to revisit time and time again this morning. And in these words, Paul roots the Lord's Supper in the Last Supper. That final meal that Jesus shared with his disciples just moments before his arrest and crucifixion. And this emotionally charged meal that we refer to as the Last Supper is, is recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel. And all three gospel writers pretty much describe the same sequence of events. Jesus takes the emblems. Jesus gives thanks for the emblems. Jesus then shares the emblems. 
They all describe it pretty much the same way. But Luke's gospel gives a little bit more detail as we would expect him to. And he uniquely reveals to us an instruction that Jesus gave to the disciples. And it's an instruction that he records and the others don't. And it's this instruction. Do this in remembrance of me. And clearly this instruction is one that Jesus' disciples took on board. Clearly it's one that they took to heart because the scripture teaches us that following his resurrection and after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the early church that was led by the disciples that gathered around the table of the Last Supper, well, that early church built into their worship the reenactment of the Last Supper. The book of Acts tells us they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. The church that built itself around the experience of Pentecost was a church that, as part of their seeking of God, they regularly reenacted the final meal that they shared with Jesus. And they did so in obedience to his command, do this in remembrance of me. Now, the further mention of this in 1 Corinthians 11 shows that the practice of communion as part of worship was one that continued beyond the Jerusalem church. In fact, the wording of 1 Corinthians 11 suggests that as the gospel spread and as churches were being planted and established, the apostles were instructing the churches to incorporate communion into their worship. And we know this because the statement is seen, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. It's written in the past tense. Paul doesn't say that what he's received from the Lord is what he is now currently passing on to them, but it's what he already has. So most likely he established the church, he shaped his mission, and he taught them about the practice and the function of communion. Now what is really interesting is that in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul calls communion the Lord's Supper. In the Gospels, it's referred to as the Last Supper. In Acts, it's called the breaking of bread. But here in Corinthians, and in Corinthians alone, it's referred to as the Lord's Supper. It's interesting that nowhere is it called communion. Now, we might think that that's just semantics, but actually the title is quite important. It was important for the Corinthians. It's important for us because the title positions the focus. This is the Lord's Supper. In this act and in this moment, as we break bread together, the focus has to be and should be on him. And if you read around the verses in Corinthians, you can see that there's a bit of a major problem surrounding the way that the Corinthian church have been approaching communion. See, they've made it all about them. The act of worship is causing division. People are not getting treated with equity or equality. People are overdulging in food and they're getting absolutely blittered when they come to break bread together. So Paul has to readjust the focus. The focus is the Lord. It's the Lord's Supper. The focus is to be on Jesus. It's not to be on them. And he teaches them this as he gives them the instructions. He says, the instructions I'm giving to you are the instructions I've received from him. This is what he says. And let me instruct you by telling you what he did. He took the bread. He broke the bread. He took the cup. He drank the cup. This is what he did. This is what he says. The whole time in his instruction, he's positioning the focus on Jesus. Moments of breaking bread together, of sharing communion, should be moments in which the focus and the intention is entirely and completely upon Jesus. 
And so before we start looking at the nitty-gritty of directions and instructions, we focus our sights on Jesus and we look to see what do these verses teach us about him? Well, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and when he given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The first thing that we see is that Paul puts the focus on Jesus And he places the focus on Jesus as Lord. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed. Paul steers into his instruction on communion by declaring the lordship of Christ. And this is really important because everything that communion represents, Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his soon return, all of these things are what makes him Lord. But there's more than just calling out that these are the things that make him Lord. Our participation in the Lord's Supper, that is our examining of the heart, our revisiting of grace, our focus upon the depths of Christ's love and the experience of that, the proclaiming of the redemption that is in Jesus, our belief in his return, all of that is what we are to engage in in the act of communion. So all of that affirms the Lordship of Jesus. This act of communion is about affirming his lordship. If in participating in the act we are forced and encouraged to focus on that which makes him lord, then by taking part in this act and engaging all that we are in doing that, we affirm his lordship. And we affirm not just our belief that he is lord of all, but we break bread and participate in communion in obedience to him. And we do so not just because he's the lord of all, but we do so because he is the lord of me. When we take part in this and we do this and we focus on this, we do it because he is not just the Lord of everything, but he is the Lord of who we are. And so this act of communion is actually an act of declaring and affirming the Lordship of Jesus. The scripture says that in partaking in this act, we are proclaiming his death until he comes. We are proclaiming the power of the coming king in our generation and in our age, but also we are affirming the same power of the same king in our own lives. Act of communion then is about bowing the knee. It's affirming and declaring this life is under the jurisdiction and the authority of Jesus. And as we focus the heart on the power of grace, as we search the heart and bring it under the influence of grace, we bring our lives, every single time that we do that, we bring our lives purposely and intentionally within the authority of Jesus Christ. Every time we take part in this act, every time we break the bread and drink the cup, and we do so because of our obedience to him, every time we search the heart and bring the heart under the boundaries and the influence of grace, every single time we bow the knee and affirm he is Lord. How powerfully spiritual is that act then? Think about this. When we come together as a people and break bread, in that moment as every heart and every mind focuses upon and affirms the Lordship of Jesus, as every person in that one moment all across the room bows the knee again, that causes the entire culture of the gathering to fall within the jurisdiction and the authority of King Jesus. As we break bread, we become united in our submission to Jesus. All of us are different. All of us are from different backgrounds and different experiences, but as we all, different though we are, begin to engage in the one act together as we break bread and focus upon and affirm the lordship of Jesus, we become one. We are united in our affirmation of his authority. We are united in our declaration of his lordship. 
And this moment then, when approached correctly, contains the power to see the authority of Jesus manifest. If every person unites in the focus of bowing the knee to Jesus afresh and affirms his lordship, then that united focus begins to set the culture of the entire room and the gathering. An entire moment, an entire culture then becomes charged with the power of the King of Kings and the authority of the Lord of Lords. A community of people agreeing together, affirming together their existence under the jurisdiction and the leadership of Jesus becomes a community that sees the dominion of Jesus, that is the rule of Jesus, that is his reign, that is his kingdom arriving within such a moment, manifesting within such a culture. And the heart that does the same equally contains the potential to see the authority of Jesus manifesting within its boundaries. And if that's the case, does that mean then that actually we should expect to see healing and deliverance and freedom, the miraculous, the infilling and baptism of the Holy Spirit, that we should expect to see these things taking place as we take communion together and together affirm the Lordship of Jesus in our lives and in our culture, that as we come and say everything that we are, we bow the knee and we bring it under the jurisdiction of Jesus, that we should therefore expect to see the boundaries of his kingdom manifesting in that moment. Does that mean that we should expect to see the conditions of the king whose kingdom we affirm beginning to shape the moment of affirmation that actually communion should be moments of love and joy and peace in the Holy Ghost because the scripture says that is the hallmarks of the kingdom of God. Communion is much more than an empty symbolic act. It is a profoundly spiritual experience that guides the heart to the place of bowing the knee and bringing its entirety under the grace and the authority of Jesus. It is a moment that puts the focus upon, affirms, and calls out the lordship of Jesus until he comes. It's a moment that causes an entire culture and gathering to fall within his jurisdiction. It's a moment then that contains the possibility of the supernatural. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. On the night of his betrayal with his arrest just round the corner in his own pain and torment immediately before him, Jesus adopts a position of thanksgiving. He gives thanks. The Greek word that is used here for give thanks is the word eucharisteo. And it's where we get the title Eucharist from, and it means to express gratitude. The initial reading of this verse could cause us to view the giving of thanks almost as though Jesus is just saying grace. Like he's thanking God for the food that they're about to eat, but I'm not sure that Jesus is thanking God for the physical bread held in his hand. I think there's something much more happening here. See, in the Gospels, we read this same word, Eucharisteo, been spoken by Jesus on just three other occasions. Each time that it's used, twice it's used similarly, or twice the situation is similar, once it's different, but each time that it's used, it's used in a moment in which Jesus is directing the attention to God because something significant is about to take place. His giving thanks preceded a significant demonstration of the power of God. 
His gratitude, his outward thanksgiving is intentional then. He pauses and gives thanks in order to direct attention to cause those around him to recognize that what is about to take place has God as its source. His thanksgiving positions focus. It announces significance. It precedes a powerful demonstration of God. We see it when he paused, holding the five loaves and the two fish in his hands, and he gave thanks. It's the word eucharisteo. And the result of that was this mind-blowing miracle and demonstration of power that saw provisions multiplied to feed 5,000 men and the women and the children that accompanied them also. The same is his approach, similarly, with the feeding of the 4,000, <clears> where he takes seven loaves and a few fish, we're told, and he gives thanks to Eucharisteo, and he feeds the multitude. The third occasion when he uses the word is when he stands in front of the tomb of Lazarus with its stone rolled away, and he looks towards heaven, the scripture says, and he gave thanks to Eucharisteo. And the result was a phenomenal demonstration of the power of God as Lazarus was resurrected from the dead. It is significant that the occasions that we see Jesus giving thanks are moments when he pauses and directs the attention and the focus and almost announces that something hugely significant and powerful is about to take place and God is at its source. His thanksgiving position's focus announces significance. It precedes a significant demonstration of God. And this occasion at the Last Supper is no different. Jesus gave thanks, Eucharisteo. He isn't merely thanking God for the provision of the bread that they're about to share. But Jesus is positioning focus. He is announcing that something hugely significant is about to take place. His thanksgiving precedes a significant demonstration of God. And the significant, phenomenal demonstration of the power of God is understood when we understand what the bread signifies. The breaking of bread signifies the breaking of his body. Likewise, the cup signifies the shedding of his blood and the whole new covenant of glory. So truly then, his thanksgiving does indeed precede a significant demonstration of God. Truly then, he is in this moment positioning our focus and announcing the significance that is about to happen. What is about to happen? Salvation is about to be unleashed upon planet earth through the cross of Christ. The power of sin is about to be vanquished. The curse of sin is about to be destroyed. Death is going to be swallowed up in victory. Hell is going to be emptied of its power. Satan is about to get his teeth knocked right out of his head. And darkness is about to envelop the light. Or darkness is going to be enveloped by light. Freedom, victory, healing, joy, peace, wholeness, life is about to travel across the globe and begin to visit person after person, heart after heart, circumstance after circumstance. Heaven is about to begin rewriting the story of lives and families and communities and people groups, not just in that moment, but for generation after generation after generation. And all of that is going to take place because his body is going to be broken. And his blood is going to be shed. His thanksgiving precedes a significant demonstration of God. Jesus gave thanks to direct focus and attention. My body is about to be broken. My blood is about to be shed. But watch. Because God is going to do something incredible. Something magnificent. 
something so significant it's going to turn the world upside down. His Thanksgiving position focused and announced significance. It seems strange to us to read Jesus as being filled with gratitude in this moment. It seems strange to us to read him as being filled with gratitude moments before he faces brutality and pain. To be so overwhelmed with thanks just before he faces crucifixion and being tortured to death. But that's not why he's filled with thanks. His gratitude isn't because he's about to endure agony and extreme torture and death. That would be a bit distorted. Now, the writer of Hebrews tells us why he's filled with gratitude. He's filled with gratitude because of the joy that is set before him. He says, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus gave thanks because he could see joy on the horizon. The joy of seeing lives transformed and communities and nations changed, yes, absolutely. But he also gave thanks because he could see the joy and he had the knowledge of his resurrection and his ascension to heaven to sit at the right hand of majesty with the name above every name. Jesus' vision at the communion table of the Last Supper wasn't just of the cross, but it was also of the empty tomb. He understood and saw not just the significance of his death, but also the power of his resurrection and the significance of his ascension to the right hand of God. And with such a vision, he gave thanks. His thanksgiving position focused and announced significance. He said, boys, things are about to get difficult and things are about to get dark, but hold on because beyond the cross is the empty tomb. And beyond the empty tomb is the throne room of heaven with the name above every other name. Something amazing, something significant is about to take place and God is at its source. His thanksgiving preceded a significant demonstration of God. And you know, every time that we break bread, every time that we share the Lord's Supper together, we must pause and give thanks. Our sharing of the Lord's Supper must not only carry an affirmation and declaration of the Lordship of Christ, but it must be a moment that is weighted with gratitude. A moment that brings the heart a place of thanksgiving, the thanksgiving that positions focus and says what we are focusing on is significant. It is the greatest demonstration of power that this world has ever seen. The death and resurrection of Jesus, the advancement of the kingdom to the four corners of the earth, seeing lives changed and families and communities and nations visited with hope. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the most significant display of power in all of history. And we must pause and give thanks in recognition of what he has done. As we break bread and celebrate the cross, our giving thanks in that moment should be about more than just saying thank you for these emblems and that we can gather like this and do this. Actually, our thanksgiving should position our focus to thank God for the most significant act that has ever taken place in history. But as we break bread, our gratitude should hold two dimensions to it. Two elements that almost exist in tension but form what Christian gratitude is all about. 
Our gratitude should carry recognition, but also expectation. Our gratitude should bring us to a place of saying, thank you for what you have done, but also in recognizing what he has done, it should begin to position our focus to announce, therefore, what he is going to do and what he can do. Christian gratitude holds recognition and expectation. It recognizes what he has done, but allows that to fuel the expectation of what he can do. And we need to come to that place where we position our focus and announce significance because the blood of Jesus Christ has never lost its power. His grace is still sufficient for us. We are still more than conquerors in every single situation because of Christ Jesus. And today in 2022, all across the world and all across our city, lives are still experiencing forgiveness and salvation. Bodies are still being healed. Miracles are still taking place. Demons still have to bow the knee and darkness is still fleeing. The dead is still being raised and the power of the Holy Spirit is still being poured out. This world and our individual worlds are still being visited by the power of God. So when we gather together and when we break bread together, our corporate affirmation of his lordship and our united expression of thanks should focus our attention. It should move our attention from what he has done to what he can still do because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he did in the pages of scripture, he still does today. And communion shouldn't then just be about thanking God for what he's done 2,000 years ago, but rather it should start with such a thanksgiving and then lead us to a moment in which we pursue the power of the cross in our lives and in our own generation now. Our thanksgiving should precede significant demonstrations of God because as we turn our eyes and focus upon what he has accomplished in the cross and then begin to actively pursue that together, to experience that in the here and now, then that focus should begin to make room for the power of Jesus to break in and break out. Moments of communion should be moments in which the power of God breaks out across the room. Moments of communion should be moments in which the power of God breaks into every heart as we allow our thanksgiving to position our focus, to announce significance, to precede demonstrations of God because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and his blood has never lost its power. Communion is not an empty symbolic act. It is a spiritual experience that positions the focus and expects God to break out and break through in lives and situations. We must never allow it to be empty and symbolic, but we must always allow it to be powerfully spiritual. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There is so much power in this statement. And there's so much power that stirs the heart with courage and confidence. And we can feel it rising on us even as we explore it. But there is so much that moves the heart too. Jesus took the bread and he broke it. He says, this is my body which is for you. We spent so much time calling out that our sharing of the Lord's Supper can't be merely reduced to a symbolic act. But yet, this sentence calls out that there is symbolism. 
The breaking of bread, Jesus says, is the symbol of what's going to happen to his body. He's going to be broken. And he's going to be broken for us. And this might sound really simplistic, but we can't rush past the fact that in this symbol and in this visual illustration, there is something really profound. And the profound aspect is seen that Jesus breaks the bread. He doesn't give it to Judas to break. That would have been a very symbolic thing. He doesn't give it to Peter, his right-hand man, who's going to lead the early stages of the church and say, break the bread. A Roman guard doesn't burst into the room and break the bread. Jesus broke it. He says, this, bo- this bread is my body. The breaking of the bread represents the breaking of my body, and Jesus breaks the bread. We can't lose sight of the significance of this. The Romans didn't put Jesus on the cross. The religious leaders of the day didn't put Jesus on the cross. The Jews calling out for his blood didn't put him on the cross. Satan did not put Jesus on the cross. Jesus did. He willingly surrendered. He tells us in John 10, I lay down my life. I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it back up again. Jesus broke the bread and says, this is my body. As I'm tearing this bread, I'm going to break my body. I'm going to lay down my life and I'm going to do it for you. I think the two most powerful words in that whole passage of Scripture is this is my body broken for you. For you. The Son of Man gave up his life. He endured the cross and the brutality of it all. For us, greater love has no man than this, and to lay down his life for his friends. The breaking of his body, the shedding of his blood was the greatest demonstration of love that this world has ever seen. And when we focus our hearts on that, when we hold in our hands the broken bread and we take to our lips the poured out wine, when we think about that, when we consider, when we meditate upon the willingness of the son to give up his everything, to take such brutality, to endure such pain and agony, when we hear him then announcing his motivation for the willingness that he has, His objective for his mission, when we hear him from his own lips tell us the reason why, he says, for you, this is my why. I did it for you. When we hear that, we can't help but fall in love with him again. Communion is not some empty symbolic act. It is a profoundly spiritual experience in which as we position our heart to hear the overflow of Christ's hearts, we are lavished, we are consumed with the love of God that is freely poured out upon us. When we hold the emblems in our hands and hear within our hearts those two powerful words for you, I did this that you would be called son, that you would be called daughter. For you, all of this is for you, that you would come, that you would have hope, that you would know life, that you would hear my voice, that you would know my touch, that you would know love. We've got to get this. We know his love because his body was broken. 
Because his body was broken, we know what his love feels like. We know what his voice sounds like. We know what his presence is like. The breaking of bread should be moments in which then the Father's love is emptied into our souls in which every accusing thought, every sinful deed, every wrong motive, every incorrectly spoken word and rash reaction, every lying thought and whispering doubt, every ounce of darkness and every lie of the enemy is met with, challenged by and confronted by the love of God. As his love floods the soul like an ocean, and causes the innermost being to be lost beneath the torrents of his pure, perfect, and supernatural love. This act of breaking bread should cause the soul to be lost in love and swept away again and enveloped in the Father heart of God. But if this causes us to fall in love again, then it causes us to come to the place of not just accepting love, but of announcing our own. I'm always caught by how moments of communion in most churches are normally moments of silence. And I get that. It is important that we examine the heart because that's what the scripture tells us to do. But oh my goodness, if we truly approach this moment as scripture would call us to do, if we begin to recognize the depths of love, if we begin to experience torrents of grace flooding the innermost being, if we encounter his lordship and discover afresh the unchanging power of his blood and of his cross, how can we possibly stay silent? How can we exist in a moment empty when it is a moment that is so full? There is so much that God is releasing to us and seeking to draw us into. This is a moment in which the love of the Father expressed towards us is met by the love of our own heart overflowing towards Him. We love because He first loved us, but love goes in two directions. And in that place of divine exchange, when the expression of His heart meets the expression of ours, well, that's the place that supernatural things begin to happen. It's the moment when profound inner ministry takes place. Because it's the moment when drinking the cup and holding the bread, our whole focus turns to him. Every heart, every mind across the room turns towards loving him. And we become united in that focus. And as we do, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. And verse 3 tells us what happens in the moment when we fix our eyes and our focus upon Jesus and we begin to consider him. It says, this is what happens. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The writer of Hebrews tells us that such a focus and consideration causes some really profound stuff to take place in the innermost being. It causes strength to arise in place of spiritual weakness. It causes strength to arise in the face of doubt. It causes the embers of faith to fan into flame and the heart to be kissed to life by the love of God. Communion is not some empty symbolic act. Glasgow Healing, we need to recognize it as and make it a profoundly spiritual experience. We need to adjust our approach and our heart attitude. We need to fix our focus and open up and approach it with wide open expectation. There is nothing magical, spiritual, or sacred about the bread and the juice. 
There is no transubstantiation, no impartation of grace that takes place when we eat the emblems. But when we position the heart right in that moment, there is so much spiritually that takes place. Not through the bread and the wine, but through the love of the Father, the blood of the Son, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is a profoundly spiritual moment. So how do we approach this then? Well, let's conclude. Jesus gives us three instructions. Do, remember, proclaim. Do. This worship involves action. It involves doing. Do this. Put this into practice. Remember. This is an act of worship that involves the mind, the heart, the soul, the focusing and the positioning of the thoughts, the setting of the sights of the heart. Proclaim. It's an act that involves expression. It moves us to worship. It calls us to respond. How do we embody this? Well, we embody it by making room to do. To do what he did. He took the bread. He broke the bread. He ate the bread. He took the cup. He drank from the cup. He held it. He ate. He tasted. His senses were involved in the act. We bring all of who we are into the act as we do likewise. We remember. We focus the heart and the mind towards Jesus. <clears throat> we focus the heart and the mind to the power of the cross and the truth of his resurrection and the affirmation of his lordship. And we do that. We direct the heart there by reading Scripture, by allowing Scripture to guide us into those moments as we approach it, by allowing the teaching of the Word to lead into moments of breaking bread together, that as He has spoken to us and ministered to us through the Word, that we bring that to that place of gratitude and affirming Lordship and coming with expectation. We approach the moment in worship and open up the soul wide, ready for Him to do what He is going to do. And we proclaim. We allow moments of silence and inner reflection, absolutely. But we unashamedly allow this moment to become one that is marked with all-out worship and high praise and celebration. Glasgow Elam, if we approach the breaking of bread and truly focus our hearts on Him, and receive his love, and express our love. When we fix our eyes on him, and see what he has done, and what he has accomplished, and when we understand that the blood has never lost its power, and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, when we begin to experience his power covering and enveloping this room, and breaking out across our community, how could we approach this in silence? We must become undone. We must come into these moments and spend ourselves in worship. That when we see him and what he has done, that's the moment. Holding those emblems, taking them together, being united as one, that our worship should rise more than it's ever risen. The moments when we should be spent on him. Let's choose together today. Never to allow our times of sharing the Lord's Supper at Glasgow Elam to be empty symbolic acts. But let's choose instead that they will always be powerful spiritual experiences. 
experiences that revolve around the em not the emblems and the rituals, but revolve around the reality of the risen Savior. Experiences that revolve around the focus that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The blood has never lost its power. What He has done is what He still does. So we thank Him for what He's done, but we pursue Him for what He is doing. And in that moment, as we all together as one do remember and proclaim, as we come united in that act together, but where there's unity, He commands His blessing and He releases life evermore. In that moment, the dimensions and the experiences of eternity, of heaven, invade the room, invade the moment, as we as a people lay hold of God with all that we've got. Let's come to that place together, and let's ensure every time we break bread, it is the most powerful moment in all of our service as we fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's stand together, shall we?